Hey guys, thanks for joining us today. One of the things that energizes our teams the most is being able to hear stories of lives that are impacted by this ministry. We would love for you to share your story with us by emailing it to stories at newcommunity.co or maybe your next step to getting connected to what God is doing in this ministry is partnering with us financially. You can do that online at www.newcommunity.co or through the PushPay app and find the giving option that works best for you. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy today's message. If you're our guest, um, we want to welcome you and say thanks so much for being here with us. Or if you're watching online for the first time, thanks for joining with us. My name is Aaron, and I am the lead pastor here at NCC. And we're so glad that you're, you're here this morning. We're in our third week of this series called The End is Near. And we've been talking the past few weeks um, of what God's word says about the end of time, how all of this is going to end. And so we, we're trying to refocus our minds and not just look at what we've seen on the big screen, you know, or what we've read in some stories, but what does God's word actually say about how all of this is going to play out and how all of this will end and looking at this from God's perspective. And as we look at this book, the book of Revelation, this is the last book in the Bible um, as God's giving this kind of prophetic revelation to this individual named John, we've been saying some statements or kind of laying some foundation that we're approaching the book with. And so if you're taking notes, you can write these things down. Even if you've written them down before, they're a great thing to remember as we approach the book of Revelation. And the first is this, this book is for everyone. So if anyone's ever told you, hey, this book is too hard to understand, just kind of skip over it, don't go to the last book. No, this book is for everyone. Jesus wrote this for all of us. And so it's not for the academic elite. It's not just for the religious scholar. It's not for just someone that understands prophecy really well. Jesus wrote this for every individual that we would understand what he's doing. The second thing that we talked about is this is a book of prophecy. And what that means is that in this book, John, the author, is writing about a real place, real time, even some real events that are going on through some of the imagery that he's using, but it's also speaking to a future time through something that's going to happen. And Jesus even told John that at the beginning of the book, write down what is yet to come. And so it's a prophetic book. The third thing is this book is meant to build our faith, not fear. Okay, so as you get into this book and you see these images of like a dragon and a beast and some of these things that are going to happen, maybe fear would kind of creep up in your heart, but that's not the purpose of this book. It's that our faith would be built and that we would see what God is doing once again and who he is. And so our faith is made stronger through this book. And the fourth thing is this is a story of Christ. Okay, so a lot of people think, well, this is a story about Antichrist, right? This guy that's going to be against what God is doing. This is a story um, about the end times or about all of this judgment and the wrath of God. No, this is a story about who Jesus is. And this is a revelation of himself um, to mankind and his plan that is going to be unfolding. And so we've talked about those things. Those are good things to remember as we approach this book. And so let me give us a quick refresher course. And if you've missed any of the weeks, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast or you can watch the videos online because I'm just going to give you a quick snapshot. I don't have time to go into all of it, everything we covered. But here's kind of um, to catch us up with where we're going to look at today is, once again, this was written by a guy named John. Okay. And um, I don't know why he's green. He's not an alien. But he has a revelation of Jesus. Man, that joke never works. I need to just stop trying. Okay, it's the third week of that. Okay, so, um, so he has this revelation of Jesus. He's on exile. So he's kind of in prison, although there's not a physical structure on this Isle of Patmos. 
So the Roman Empire would just kind of throw you on the island and you were stuck there. So he's a prisoner because of his faith in Christ. This was written around the mid-90s AD. So this is about 60 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. And Jesus is wanting to reveal to his church what's going to take place and what's going to be happening. And the book starts with seven letters to seven influential churches. And so the first week, we looked at the first and last letter, the first letter to Ephesus, where Jesus tells them, hey, you've ran away from love. You've abandoned love. And what God is telling them is, hey, love well. The world is going to know who I am by the way you love one another and take care of one another. And so he's challenging them, love well, to the church at Ephesus. And then the church in Laodicea, he gives them this imagery Don't become lukewarm Christians. Don't become apathetic. Don't rely on all of your wealth and all of your influence and all of your wisdom. Continue to run to me, come to me, because I want a relationship with you. And then the second week, we looked at this revelation that John has in the kind of in the next few chapters of who Jesus is and how Jesus stood out among every other religious leader, among every other individual. As John looks into heaven and the curtains of heaven are pulled back, John sees that Jesus is the only one throughout all history who is able to unroll this scroll and reveal what God is going to do at the end times. And so Jesus is the only one. So John's challenging us. Keep your focus on Jesus. Jesus stands out. And then we got into the imagery that John gives us of this dragon, Satan, the devil, the serpent of old is some of how he is described and how he has had one agenda throughout all time. The devil's had one plan, and that is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what he's wanted to do. And all throughout history and all the way through the end of time, he's going to keep trying to do that. And he's going to use different um, world leaders, prominent figures, um, political systems. And that was the imagery that we got in the beast. Some of this political systems of Rome um, attacking the church, the Antichrist, this one individual that we believe at the end of time will, will continue to try to fulfill the role that Satan is wanting to do to kill, steal, and destroy. And where we left last week was, hey, keep your focus on Jesus. The enemy is trying to distract. And so keep your focus on Jesus, the salvation of the world and what Christ has done. And so we're gonna continue um, into kind of the middle of the book of Revelation. But this morning, as we get into this, we're gonna look at the book of Genesis, which may seem a weird place to start when we're talking about the end of the world and the end times. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one there for you. It's in the seat in front of you, and it's on page two. I want to encourage you to pull that out. And I'm not going to read a specific section, but you can kind of follow me as we walk through this. Um, Depending on the Bible you have, it may have some header there where it says the fall of man or original sin or man's sin or something like that. But in this passage in Genesis chapter three, this is what's taking place. God has created the world. Everything we see around us, you guys, the heavens, the stars, the planets, moon, all of those things. Um, He separated the land from the water. He's spoken all of that into existence. The trees, the vegetations, the animals. God has taken man and woman and he's formed them out of the dust of the ground and he's breathed the breath of life into them and he's given them this perfect world. And God looks at everything he creates and he says, this is good. I look at this world and, and I think, man, this is good. That's what God declares over his creation. And then in chapter three, we're introduced into this character, the dragon that John tells us about in Revelation, the devil enters into God's perfect creation. 
And this is what the devil does. He comes to Eve, he comes to Adam, to man and woman, and he says, did God really say don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? And Eve says, no, that's not what God says. And this is what Satan, he deceives them, once again, to kill, steal, and destroy, to deceive them and break their relationship with God. He's like, that's not what God said. A matter of fact, God knows that if you eat of that fruit, you'll become like him. And this is what God is doing. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to have the full benefits of the world that he's created. So God's withholding something from you. He's jealous of you. He doesn't want you to become like him. And so Eve sees that and she takes that fruit. She eats it. It's good. She gives some to Adam. And in that moment, a couple of things happen. The first thing is it breaks man's relationship with God. When God enters the garden, he begins to cry out, Adam, where are you? Not because he doesn't know Adam's physical location, but because there's always been this relationship, this connection between God and man, and in that moment, it is broken. And God's saying, spiritually, where are you at, Adam? What did you allow to happen? What took place there? What did you do? That's what he's talking to Adam about. We're no longer connected in that way that we were meant to be, the way that we were designed to be. The second thing that happens that I think we often miss as we read this story is that we broke the physical world around us. And this is key, you guys. We broke the physical world around us. As you start to read this, God is telling Adam and Eve, do you realize what you've done? Here are the consequences. Because of what you've done, the world around you is being altered. And for the first time, pain is introduced. Ladies, I'm sorry, but when you have kids, and if you've had kids, you realize it hurt, okay? That was not God's plan. Pain is introduced for the first time. Death is introduced for the first time. Now, all of a sudden, getting food, it's a toil, it's labor, it's work. That's not how it was meant to be. All of these things, the physical um, structure of the snake is now altered. God said, hey, you're going to crawl on, on your belly on the ground. Like The physical world around us is broken because of the sin that we allowed to enter in. It not only affected our relationship with God, it affected our relationship with the world around us and the physical makeup of the world around us. And it's because of our sin. And although you and I would love to point back and say, no, that was Adam and Eve, I think we could be honest and say, we've played our share in it, haven't we? We've played our share in our rebellion, in our disrespect, you know, in our, our sin against God. We've played our share and added to the brokenness of the world around us. And church, if we don't get this, what we're about to go into, what we're about to talk about, like we'll scratch our head and we'll be puzzled and we'll say, God, that's pretty cruel of you. Like, why would you do that? But we have to understand we're the ones that did this. God gave us a good, perfect world and we are the ones that broke it. And so what we're seeing, what God is revealing is the consequences of our sin and what's taking place because of what happened in the book of Genesis. And so we're gonna fast forward And if you have your Bibles, we're going to go all the way to the end now to the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 14, it's on page 599, and you'll have to flip over also page 600 with what we're going to read and be looking at here. So Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, and we're going to pick up after John has talked to us about how Satan's going to deceive, how this governmental, like these political leaders are going to rise, how one world figure is going to kind of um, race to the top and be thought that he's the salvation of the world. And then John begins to unfold what God is doing as all of this comes to an end. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 says this, and then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. I want you to highlight that because that's something that we're going to look at, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, 
to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because of the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, the third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he shall also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And their smoke and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So what's going on here? What's taking place? What is it that John is seeing? Well, he's seeing three angels, okay? And what he's seeing, he's seeing this vision of heaven. So it's not like on the earth, you're gonna see these angels or you're gonna hear this loud declaration. But as it's happening in heaven, we feel the effects of it here on earth, okay? So it's something John sees and hears in heaven, and now all of a sudden, earth begins to feel the effects of this revelation that he's seeing whenever this time approaches. And so he sees three angels, and the first one, the first thing that we hear is all of these angels, what they're about to declare is eternal gospel, like good news, okay? And and so we're gonna get into this. How is this good news? But this eternal gospel, to everyone that hears this, this is actually good news. And the first thing that he's declaring is to fear God. He's calling for every nation, for every tribe, for every individual here on this earth that's dwelling on the earth. He's calling out to them, fear God and worship God. He's the one who created all of this. It's like this last call. This angel gives out this last call. Hey, God's still inviting you. God's still inviting you to come, to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part, to be in relationship. Our sin that broke our relationship with God all the way back in the garden. Now at the last book, the end, God is still calling out to man, hey, I want to be close to you. I want to be in a relationship with you. That is good news. Everyone, he's inviting them, come, partake, see who I am. And so that's what the first angel is declaring, this good news. He's calling one last time everyone to come into a relationship with God. The second angel, what's the image that we get of that? And it's that Babylon has fallen, right? Like the city, I don't know if you guys can see this, kind of this city is in ruin. And and what's going on here? What is it that John is declaring in this moment? Well, he's not just talking about one major city, but it's the symbol that Babylon is. And if you've read in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, there was this city called Babel, similar to Babylon, and it's this imagery that's taken all throughout the Bible of this group of people that came together, and this is what they said. They said, man, if we really pool our resources, if we try really hard, we could build something that could overthrow God, and we could build this tower that could reach to the heavens. I know we think this sounds weird, right? But they actually thought they could get high enough to reach into the sky and to overthrow God, to pull God out of heaven, and that they could rule. And God's obviously like, no, that's not going to happen, right? And so he confuses their language, like this is part of what's taking place. But Babylon, Babel, it's always been this idea of these people that are opposing God, that are trying to overthrow God. This system, like Babylon was actually this empire in the Old Testament, the time before Christ, and it was coming and it was oppressing the people of God. It was this system that was carrying God's people into exile, into slavery, that was calling them away to worship false gods. And what is the second angel declaring? That's falling. 
As all of this plays out, as the end of time comes, those systems of the world are falling. Those people that are opposing God, those people that stood up and thought they could overthrow God, all of those things are falling. The judgment of Christ is coming, and it's going to overturn evil, and evil does not win out in the end. Jesus does. And so this is good news. He's declaring that evil will not win in the end. And maybe you're sitting here, and you're like, okay, I kind of get how that's good news, right? Like that the first angel is saying, hey, God wants a relationship. Everyone come. That kind of makes sense. The second angel, that the systems of this world are falling, that evil is going to be defeated. I get how that is, that symbolism there. I kind of get how that's good news. But how is the third angel good news? How is the wrath of God, like this smoke of torment, like how is that possibly good news? What is, how is what he's saying an eternal gospel to what's taking place there, to what Christ is saying, where he says, if anyone worships the beast over here, what Satan is using to deceive and to bring deception in the world, that if we worship him, that we will face the full wrath of God poured out upon us, the full strength of God. And it's this, as I was thinking about this verse and thinking, okay, God, how is this an eternal gospel? It's because of this. It's because the justice of God will enter into the world in full effect once again. And as I thought about this, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down because this is key. The love of God requires or demands that he is just. The love of God demands that he is just. I want you to get that, church. Okay, because so many times as a church, we want a loving God, right? We want to imagine God is loving and that he's good, right? That he's some kind of spiritual teddy bear up in heaven that we can just kind of cuddle up to. And that's who God is. That's the picture that we want of him. But actually a loving God, it demands that he is just, that he is holy and that he is righteous. And so we look at this like the consequences, the wrath of God that is being poured out. Um, the wrong that we have done demands that some payment be made that something is made right, right? Like we see that in our judicial system that when someone commits a crime, we feel like, hey, it's just, they have to pay for that. Something has to be done. And so many times we want to picture this God that is loving, but not the God, not a God that is just, or at least not a God that is just the way the Bible tells it. We want to think of justice our way that we could somehow, God could just allow everyone to kind of brush over their sin and everyone is just going to make it in. But that's not the God of justice that we see. See, someone has to pay the price. And so many times we want to blame God for the brokenness we see in the world. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you know people that have done this. Like we see disaster happening. We see earthquakes. We see flooding. Like we see natural things taking place. We see sickness in our world. We see disease. And what do we do? We shake our fists at the heavens, either literally or figuratively. And we say, God, why did you let this happen? God, if you're so loving, how could you allow this to take place? How could you do this in the world? And we blame God. And I imagine that God is looking down from heaven with tears in his eyes, looking at mankind saying, how could you do this to the world? What I gave you was perfect. What I gave you was good. What I gave you was meant to function in a proper way, and you've broken the world that I gave you through your sinful acts, through your deeds. This is not a vindictive God or a God of revenge shaking his finger at the world. This is a God of compassion saying, what I gave you was beautiful, and you've destroyed it. And now look at the full wrath of the consequences of what you've done. Someone has to pay the price, and God is not to blame, church. We are. We're the ones that have done this 
to the world around us. And everything that we're about to see unfold is because sin requires a price. It requires some kind of punishment. And we don't see this often of God. We, once again, like to think of him as loving, but we don't often want to see him as just. And as I was thinking about this and reflecting on it, I thought of a song that used to play on the radio whenever I first came to Christ. It was on the Christian radio station. And this is the words. It made me think of many times how we want to view God. And it says, the more that I know of your power, Lord, the more I'm mindful of how casually we speak and sing your name. How often we have come to you with no fear or no wonder, only calling upon you for what we stand to gain. And then the chorus said, God forbid that I find you so familiar that I think of you as less than who you are. Church, God forbid that I find him so familiar that I want to see him as loving and not just that that I think of him as less than who he is, the wholeness of who God is. And we wrestle with this idea, but in order for God to be loving, he has to be just as well. See, sin and wrongdoing demands a payment. And how is this third angel's words good news? How is this good news? What is it that he's declaring? I love the picture that we get in a children's book that was written by C.S. Lewis called The Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe you're familiar with them. They were made into movies a couple of years ago. But we get this picture of these four kids that enter this magical kingdom. And while they're there, one of the kids betrays and turns on the others. He commits this act of rebellion against them. And the wicked witch, this picture of Satan, this allegory that's written, comes and says a sacrifice is demanded. That's what's written in the law. His life is required. I'm going to sacrifice and kill him. And Aslan, this great lion, steps in. This picture of Jesus steps in and says, no, I'll be the sacrifice. I'll take his place. And the witch kills the lion on this stone tablet. And the children come the next morning expecting to find him dead, but his body is not there. And when he comes over the hilltop and the sun behind him, they run up, they yell his name, Aslan, they wrap their arms around him and they said, we thought you were dead. And Aslan says what I believe is one of the most powerful quotes in the book. And he says this, if the witch had understood the true meaning of sacrifice, that it's not a life that is taken, but a life that is given, then she would have understood that the old laws were to be broken when that happened and even death itself would begin to work backwards. Even death itself would begin to work backwards. See, Jesus took that and he paid that price for you and me. See, the full wrath of God, we couldn't pay it on our own church. We didn't have the ability. Your sin and my sin had broken our relationship with God and the world around us, and we deserve death. We deserve the full punishment and the consequences of our sin of breaking the world around us. And when we couldn't do anything, Jesus stepped in to our place. He took your place, not by having his life taken, but by giving his life for you and for me. And this is the truth of this, is that God has already done that. The wrath of God in the fullness, the fullness of the wrath of God has been placed upon the person of Jesus Christ. But God's not going to force that on you. And you and I have the option to say, God, I'm messed up, I'm broken, I'm a jacked up individual. God, there is sin in my life and I desperately need your gift of salvation. Jesus, I accept that gift, take my place. I accept what you did. Or we can do what we've seen the world do throughout all time and that is to curse God and say, no, I don't want anything to do with you. 
And when that happens, church, when we turn our back on God, when we listen to the deception of what the enemy is doing and we worship other things instead of worshiping God, whenever we do that, we are going to face the consequences of our sin. And the book of Revelation gives that to us. In Revelation chapter 16, this is what it says. If you still have your Bible open, that we see seven angels. Once again, we see them in heaven, but we feel the effects of the earth and the bowls or the wrath of God is being poured out. And the first bowl, what are the consequences of our sin? It's a physical sickness. There's painful sores for anyone who's worshiped the beast and rejected Christ. The second bowl, the sea is turned into blood and everything inside of it dies. The third bowl, the rivers and the springs turn to blood. All of the fresh water turns to blood. The fourth bowl is poured out upon the sun and there is a scorching heat that covers the earth. The rest of the world will know what Texas feels like in the summer, you guys. That's what's going to happen, okay? But you're not going to want to experience that. It's the wrath of God being poured out. The fifth bowl, darkness over the kingdom of the beast. The sixth bowl, the river of Euphrates will be dried up and demons will be released and they will rally the kings of the world and the armies of the world and they will once again try to come together and overthrow God. And then the seventh bowl, this great earthquake and great hailstorms. John describes it like hail that is a hundred pounds, just these large things coming down from the heavens and destroying mankind. And we see this, this is the wrath of God when we choose to reject the salvation of Christ, to reject what the Lamb has done, we will face the consequences of our sin. One theologian says we struggle with this. And he said, if we could have our way in Christianity, we would want a God without wrath who would bring men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of Christ without the cross. He's saying we want to imagine this God without wrath, just this loving God who doesn't make anyone answer for the wrong that has been committed, who would bring men without sin. We're not that bad after all, are we? I mean, in essence, we're really good people into a kingdom without judgment through the work of Christ without a cross. Because if that's not true, if we're not really fallen, then why did Jesus need to come? Why did he need to give his life? It's because the wrongdoing that we've committed, it demands a payment. It demands justice. It demands that someone answer for that. In church, we can have this picture of God as being loving, but his love demands justice. And if God doesn't hate the systems of government that oppress and that belittle people, then he is not loving and just. If God doesn't stand up and hate racism, which devalues entire parts of the human race, that he's not loving and just. If God doesn't stand up and deal with and answer the problem of evil in our world, he is not loving and just. See, sin and the wrongdoing in our world demands an answer. And Christ said, and co- said, I'll come and I'll take your place. But you and I have that option of what we will do. And then as we see this come to an end, Revelation chapter 19 says this, and then I saw the heaven open and behold, a white horse. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And the one sitting on him is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name of which is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations, and he will rule over them with an iron rod, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, Almighty, and on his robe, 
and on his thigh, he has a name written, which is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you're curious, yes, Jesus does have a tattoo, okay? It's right there on his thigh. It says King of Kings, okay? So what are we told? We're told that Jesus will come and he'll rule over the earth. And the armies will come and they'll try to wage war. They'll try to do what they did all the way back in Genesis and overthrow God. But it's not going to be this long epic battle like on Lord of the Rings, right, where it's like three hours. It's just going to be in this moment. The, the word of God is going to come out of the mouth of Jesus. Jesus is going to speak and the armies of this world will be crushed. And then we're told that Jesus will reign in righteousness for a thousand years. And next week, we're going to get into the final judgment in heaven and hell and what all of that looks like. But let me remind you of this, church. We know this, that Christ will come, that apart from Jesus, that we are separated from our sins. Those are some of the essentials of the faith, the truth that God's word has authority in our life, that God's word, that scripture is breathed of God, that it's inspired of God, and that it has the ability to shape who we are. That's an essential of the faith. What we talked about this morning, the essential of the faith that you and I are sinful people and we can't fix the problem on our own. That's an essential of the faith that Christ came and that this lamb of God took our place. He was the sacrifice. He gave his life for you and for me, for our sins. That's an essential of the faith. Okay, we believe that. Around those essentials of the faith, we're united. Like we stand together, we would die. Christians have died for some of those truths throughout history because we believe them to the core of who we are. We're united around those things. And then there's some non-essentials. Like even as we've walked through this series, you've seen some of these things, right? Like, is it gonna play out here? Does something happen more towards the end? Is it a thousand years? Is that a literal thousand years? Or is it just a season of time that God is giving us to express what's happening? Like, those are some non-essentials, the way this timeline is gonna play out. And in those areas, we give grace to each other because we try to understand, but, but those aren't essentials of the faith. But we know this, church, that apart from God's salvation, we are broken and we are sinful people and we deserve the consequences of our sin. And that Christ has come to make a way for us. And next week we're gonna talk about what that looks like if we will accept or what will happen if we reject the salvation that God has given us and how that plays into our eternity. And as we close, before we pray this morning, I want to just answer two of the questions that you guys have sent in. You guys have sent in some great questions. You can continue to text them in, and I'll try to hit a few more next week. But one of the things that were, were asked as we talked about this and as we discussed this, someone asked, hey, what is the resurrection of the dead going to look like? Okay, so maybe you're picturing zombies coming out of the ground. Maybe you've watched too much Walking Dead, okay, but that's not what it's going to be like. It's not going to be a decaying body. And I want to give this to you in the book of Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is known as the resurrection chapter. I think that's literally the title of it in most Bibles, the resurrection chapter. Um, but in verse 35 through 49, Paul describes what it's going to be like. And he says, it's not going to be the same as the physical bodies that we've had here. What was sown in the physical is going to be raised in this new spiritual, this new resurrected body. And he uses the analogy of how animals have different bodies, right? Like fish and, and then whales and then even mammals, you know, like giraffes and all of them elephants and how we're different from them as humans. And our heavenly body will be different from the physical body that we've had. And we see this in Christ after he was resurrected, that he could eat, but he could also walk through walls. Like there was something different here. It wasn't the physical body that he had lived in for the 33 years leading up into that point. His body had been changed 
and glorified. And so we know that it will be different, not a decaying body, but Paul says we'll, be put, we'll put on the imperishable, something that will last, that will never die, that will never decay, that will never fade away. And so that's a small image. You can read that chapter to get a picture of what the resurrection will look like. And then the second question um, that I wanted to highlight this week, how bad does it have to get for the end of the world to happen? Like how bad does it have to get for God to come back? And I would say, I don't know, man, it's pretty bad right now, you guys. Like there's so many times where I'm thinking, God, how much worse could it possibly get when we see everything that's happening and everything that's taking place? Like how much worse can it get? But God's not waiting for the world to destroy itself or waiting for us to get bad enough, if you will. Second Peter tells us what God is waiting for. In the second Peter chapter three, verse nine, the Bible says this, don't imagine God's waiting just to be slow or laziness. Don't picture God up in heaven and he's just lazy, like he's not wanting to come back. No, he's being patient. Him being slow, he's being patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to everlasting life. He wants everyone, as many people as possible, to receive this gift of salvation, that their hearts would turn and that they would focus and understand who Christ is and what he has done, and they would receive his gift of life. So God's not waiting for the world to get bad enough. He's being patient because he wants as many as possible to come and to enter his kingdom to receive the gift of salvation that his son has offered through Jesus Christ. 